Hello and welcome to the Chemistry at University podcast. This is a series aimed at sixth form students in the United Kingdom who are studying A-level chemistry and who want to gain an insight into studying chemistry at university. My name is Max Taylor and I am a third year chemistry undergraduate at Durham University who studied chemistry, maths and physics at A-level. In this episode, we shall start speaking to our second guest, Professor Anne-Marie O'Donoghue, who is a professor of organic and biological chemistry at Durham University. In today's episode, we shall speak to her about her fascinating background before having a look at the undergraduate organic chemistry course that she teaches. In the next episode, we shall then have a look at her research and the large number of fields that it spans. Before we get started, as always, I'd like to remind you that there is a PDF handout associated with this episode, and you can find the link in the episode notes. I'd recommend that you have a look at this as it provides more detail about the concepts we'll cover and provides resources for you to learn more. Let's get on and meet Professor O'Donoghue. I'm here today with Professor Anne-Marie O'Donoghue, who is a professor of organic and biological chemistry here at Durham University. Her research spans organic, physical and biological chemistry and looks at reaction mechanisms with a specific focus on their catalysis. She also lectures a second year course here at Durham called Determination of Reaction Mechanism. Good morning, Professor O'Donoghue. I'll now just give you a quick moment to introduce yourself. Uh, good morning, Max. Um, first of all, I'm really delighted you asked to interview me today, so thanks for the opportunity. Um, so I'm currently, very recently, promoted to professor, uh, delighted with this. Um, so I've been at Durham now just over 15 years, um, but I, I can briefly go through some of the various career points and, and uh, choices that I've made along the way. Uh, thank you. So we'll jump, first of all, congratulations on your uh, recent promotion, which is obviously brilliant news. Um, and we'll jump straight into it. So you've just been promoted. So I was wondering if you could outline your career all the way from your A-levels up until now a recently promoted professor of chemistry. Sure. Um, so back, I always loved science in school, uh, the whole way through school. Science and maths were, were probably my, my favourite subjects. Um, at the point at which I, I applied to university, I probably would have said I would I will do maths in, in university. So I had a brilliant maths teacher in school, Dr. Murphy. He was really encouraging. He took a group of us to the Maths Olympiad in, in Dublin, etc. So that was probably influenced a lot by that. But in general, I like uh, like science. Um, so although I briefly considered medicine, um, I did decide to do a science degree. Um, I, at that point, I didn't consider uh, further further away outside of Ireland. So I was mainly considering Trinity College Dublin and University College Dublin. And uh, what made me go to University College Dublin in the end was the fact that it's a natural sciences program. So you did a broad spread of different subjects. So it allowed me to keep my options open at that point. So uh, just in case I changed my mind, which as it happens, I did when I went to, to university. Um, so yeah, I was lucky enough to get a, a place in, in UCD on their natural sciences program. It's at the time, um, it was a four year degree program. And uh, you start off in, in first year doing a variety of, of different subjects. Um, so you do a spread of different, different types of science subjects, including the more traditional ones. Uh, and I just absolutely loved chemistry uh, in first year. And I think a lot of that was down to the labs. We were, I came from a relatively small school, um, you know, small labs, etc. And here we were into these very big labs, massive labs, actually even bigger than we have in, in, in Durham here, because uh, the 
we t in, in University College Dublin, 500 students start in, in oh. first year. A <laughs> lot, lot bigger so, than ours then, a lot bigger than ours. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, big labs, really, you know, active, um, really exciting, actually. And we had fantastic demonstrators and lab supervisors. And all of that, I think it was very social as well. By contrast, at the time, you know, the maths classes were smaller. I also was one of only two girls in the in the maths classes. I'm not I'm not really sure if that influenced my decision, but overall, I just preferred chemistry. So uh, so that 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 probably dictated why I eventually ended up doing doing chemistry as my final choice. But but the way it worked, I, you you narrow down as you go through your degree. Uh, so in second year, I did biochemistry. At maths and chemistry in third year maths and chemistry and then finally in fourth year chemistry only and um, in fourth year is much the same uh, as we do as we have here in Durham uh, so you do a research projects and do some lectures alongside um, so that that yes that was my undergraduate de degree program um, at that point I really enjoyed my final year research projects um, and that made me encouraged to go on, actually. So I, I really felt that a PhD was right for me. Uh, I, I was lucky enough in the just the same stage as you, Max, um, after the third year of my undergraduate program, um, I applied for Procter and Gamble's summer vacation program. So as it happened, little did I know I'd be living back in the area um, a number of years later. So I came to Newcastle uh, when I was around 19, 20, uh, and spent a summer in Procter and Gamble in Newcastle, along with 20 students from all over Europe, including students from across the UK. And we were working in their research labs there. It was absolutely fantastic. So I think that alongside um, the, my final year research project um, inspired me to go on. Uh, so I noticed, uh, particularly in, in Procter & Gamble, you know, quite a few of the very senior people have PhDs. So I, I felt, you know, that, that that's, yeah, I felt it was the right road for me to take. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so that was end of degree. And then when it came to PhD, um, at that point I did consider uh, further field. Um, so I did apply to Cambridge for a physical chemistry PhD as it happened. Um, so I was sort of on the edge between organic and physical. And I, I did have a position um, it, with the physical chemistry group in Cambridge, but decided to stay in Dublin with Professor Rory Moore Farrell, my PhD supervisor, who's a physical organic chemist. So he does a lot. Uh, he, uh, he used to teach courses like I teach in second year, uh, and I personally really enjoyed that. And I liked the combination um, of organic and physical. I didn't see myself as a, a diehard synthetic chemist doing, you know, total synthesis with 30 steps. Uh, but <laughs> but I liked the, I didn't want to give up my, my organic synthesis either. So, so I felt for me, physical organic was a good combination of the two. So I chose to stay in UCD uh, to do my PhD uh, with Rory, who was a fantastic supervisor. Sadly, he's now passed away, uh, but he was really supportive. He gave me lots of opportunities um, to travel and experience other labs. Um, so in my first year of my PhD, I got to go to a 
big winter school in Italy, uh, where we met physical organic chemists from across Europe. Um, as, it, as it happens, it was the first time I met my husband as well. <laughs> but um, <laughs> The wide opportunity is a chemistry degree. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, but that was really you know, just opening your eyes to what was going on uh, across Europe and meeting some very friendly people and some really impressive scientists. Um, so that was first year. Um, I also got the opportunity um, to go to Japan. So I spent three months in Japan in the second year of my PhD. Um, in a lab in Kyushu University, um, in Fukuoka in Japan. And I was in a laser lab, very different. It was um, essentially my PhD was on carbocation chemistry. So I used to make very reactive precursors. So a lot of synthesis to get to these precursors that then fall apart. <laughs> so, um, so I took some of my precursors with me to Japan and we were basically fired lasers at them and hoped we got a carbocation, which was what I was interested in. Um, so uh, I was really lucky and had that experience. Again, made more connections, sort of broadened my viewpoint of, of science, you know. Um, so all of that, I think, was really, really um, useful for me in, in, in terms of my scientific career. Um, yeah, so and, and then it came to the end of the PhD, which I really enjoyed. It was more classical organic chemistry. So at that point, I'd done no biological chemistry at all. It was a combination of physical and organic. Um, uh, so then it came to um, what do I do next? And I, I did think at that point I'd like academia. Uh, my supervisor was very encouraging. Um, so I decided, um, okay, I'm not going to stop here. And it, it, at that point, and still now, it is necessary to get postdoctoral experience. Um, so to you know get experience in as many labs as you can um, to you know essentially makes you uh, think a bit more broadly. Um, so at that point, I did consider biological. Um, so I was looking into going to the states in particular. Um, I didn't just because I like the idea of living in the States as well for a few years. I didn't actually look anywhere else apart from the States and a little bit in, in Canada and Ontario, but apart from just the States, I didn't consider anywhere else for, for a postdoc. Um, so I was particularly interested in a particular professor called Professor John Richards. He was a well-known enzymologist in the State University of New York. And why I liked him was because he applied the tools of physical organic chemistry to biological systems. So I felt it was a good next step for me. Um, I'd be familiar with, with applying the various tools, uh, but I would still learn some new things. So in his lab, I was lucky enough to learn how to make a protein, overexpress a protein, so much more biological. And that was my first experience of, of doing that because um, I did very little biological chemistry in my undergraduate and PhD. Um, so I was lucky enough to get a Fulbright scholarship to, to help support me go there um, in, in terms of funding, which was fantastic. I initially intended just to go for two years, but stayed for three and a half. So I really, really enjoyed that, that part of New York. Um, and also there had the opportunity to travel around to different conferences and meet other scientists, which was really, really fantastic. Um, so at that point, um, I came back briefly to my alma mater, to University College Dublin, in a teaching position, actually. So it was a teaching lectureship. Uh, stayed there very briefly, um, less than a year. Um, and I, fortunately, I had applied for a Marie Curie Fellowship to go to Cambridge as a postdoc, a second postdoctoral position, this time in a biochemistry department. Um, and I was lucky to get the, the fellowship and uh, work with Professor Florian Holfelder 
on uh, the directed evolution of proteins. So um, as it happens, you, more people are familiar with that now. Frances Arnold won the Nobel Prize for chemistry in 2018. She was instrumental. She was one of the pioneers in the development of directed evolution. Uh, but back then it was sort of earlier days. I found it really exciting. So I was lucky to have the opportunity um, to, to work in Florian's lab. Um, and essentially, after fi finishing the Marie Curie Fellowship, a brief spell in Durham, in Dublin, again, to do some teaching. And then I came to, I applied and was lucky enough to get my position here in Durham. Uh, and I've been here ever since, <laughs> so, uh, et cetera. So yes, started out as a lecturer, um, moved through the various steps, a brief period in 2008, nine, for maternity leave, I have two children. Um, and uh, yeah, and that brings me to today. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks. I think that gives a really good overview of uh, as something we'll come on to later, just how wide a number of fields you can cover in one career. I think it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating how you've gone from maybe I'll do maths and then you can actually find something and then you're trying to decide between physical and organic chemistry, but you can just do both, which I think is really, it's really Absolutely. interesting for people at A-level who might be studying three sciences and don't know which their favourite or or something it's, it's really good to see sort of just how how wide a field you can go into but anyway we'll come on to that later okay. um i'd like to now speak um a bit, a bit about the undergraduate course you teach second year determination of reaction mechanism uh, which was in fact one of my favorite courses last year i found it really really interesting uh, and hopefully some of our listeners uh, will as well if they reach that stage so i was wondering if you could please tell me a little bit about the course and what sort of concepts you cover okay absolutely um so I really enjoy teaching the course, I should say. Um, it's actually quite close to what we do in, in my own lab and um, trying to understand uh, reaction mechanism. Um, so overall in first year and probably at A-level as well, you're presented with a whole variety of organic reaction mechanisms and you're broadly told to just accept these as gospel. Um, but in reality, uh, going back um, several decades when people were first looking at all of these mechanisms, and they, there were usually a variety of options. Um, so the aim of my course in second year is largely to probe reaction mechanism and to use various tools in trying to distinguish between one mechanism and, and an, another mechanism. So, um, so overall, I, I go there are five main approaches that I uh, describe in the course. There are more, and you can move on to those at, at later levels. Um, but I, at least at the second year level in my course, uh, I go through five main uh, approaches. Um, so one of the concepts which may re help relate back to A-level, uh, so I start off by something called a, a linear free energy relationship. It sounds complicated. The acronym for this is LFER, but essentially what we're doing there is correlating rate constants for one reaction with equilibrium constants for another reaction. Um, so hopefully you know what a rate and equilibrium constant is. Um, and you can do that systematically and by comparing and contrasting across different classes of reactions, it gives you insight uh, into, into different reaction mechanisms and can allow you to distinguish uh, different reaction mechanisms. And the most famous of the linear free energy relationships is something called the Hammett equation, uh, which in particular organic uh, chemists use all the time. We apply all the time. You'll see it popping up in research papers all over the place in trying to help you 
distinguish reaction mechanisms. So that um, takes up a fair proportion of the course. Uh, I, another really important concept, which is in particularly used in biological chemistry actually, is the concept of kinetic isotope effects. And uh, that's where you take, for example, an organic molecule, and you take one of the hydrogens, it doesn't have to be hydrogen, you can use other elements, but more often it tends to be hydrogen. You can change it for a heavier isotope of hydrogen, such as deuterium, and you can monitor what that does to the rate of reaction. Um, and from observing what, how, how the rate changes, it could slow down substantially, in which case that tells you it's a, what we call a primary isotope effect. And that tells you that it's most likely that hydrogen, that particular atom is involved in the rate limiting step. It's transferred directly. So it gives you a little insight into, into what's happening in your, the rate limiting step of, of a mechanism. Sometimes you get smaller effects and even that is useful. That can also tell you something about the, the type of intermediate uh, that you can see. Um, so that's the area of isotope effects. You can, it doesn't have to be hydrogen, deuterium. It could be a heavier atom. So we can look at carbon isotope effects, etc. Um, and when it comes to later in the degree program, at least here in Durham, you know, biological chemists have for years used uh, labeling as a way of tracing biosynthetic pathways and, and distinguishing between different biosynthetic uh, pathways. So uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Cal, Professor Cobb, I should say, uh, teaches uh, this, this here at Durham in third year. So isotope effects are particularly useful at distinguishing mechanism. Um, and then there are a variety of other components to the course, uh, some a little bit more detailed, a little bit further on from, from undergraduate. But for example, you might have heard of enthalpy and entropy of reaction. Uh, so we can look at the enthalpy barriers to a reaction. You might know what an activation barrier is for a reaction, the Arrhenius equation. Um, so you can break that down into different components, such as the enthalpy and the entropy of activation. And from both the signs and the magnitude of these values, that can give you insight into, into a reaction as well. Uh, so overall, uh, essentially we're doing a bit of detective work um, in trying to figure out, just get a few clues as to uh, what our mechanism is. It, it is pretty important in my books. Uh, I'm obviously a card carrying physical organic chemist, so I would say that, but understanding mechanism is really quite key um, because it's very difficult to optimize any any reaction uh, without knowing the mechanism, for example. So, okay. Perfect, thank you. So I'm now just gonna, we're gonna take a quick break and I'm just going to go and explain a bit more about isotope labeling and how we can use this to determine some further mechanisms. Okay, so taking a break for now from that interview, we're now going to touch on an undergraduate level concept that you'll meet, which is the idea of using isotope labelling to determine chemical reaction mechanisms. So by now you're hopefully familiar with the idea of isotopes, but just in case you've forgotten, they're variants of a chemical element that have the same number of protons, but different numbers of neutrons. Now, the way isotope labelling works is we change one atom in a reactant to be a different isotope to its naturally occurring one. So, for example, in carbon, the naturally occurring isotope is carbon-12, so that is carbon with six neutrons. We can change this to carbon-14, so that is carbon with eight neutrons. We can then track this atom through a reaction to see where it ends up. 
Now the best way to see this is going to be through an example. So let's look at one. And in this example we're going to look at methanol synthesis. So hopefully by now you realize that methanol is the, the simplest alcohol. And you can see its structure in figure one of the handout, just, just for, a, for a quick reminder. Now uh, we make this industrially by mixing carbon dioxide, so that's CO2, carbon monoxide, so CO, and hydrogen, H2, together in a reactor. Now chemists at some point in the past wanted to know where the carbon in the methanol comes from. Because obviously there's, there's two carbon containing reactants in that reactor. You've got the carbon monoxide and the carbon dioxide. So where does the carbon, the one carbon in the methanol come from? Which reactant? And the way they determined this was to label one of the reactants. So for example, let's say we label the carbon dioxide with carbon-14 so that it is now what we would term carbon-14 dioxide. We now carry out the reaction uh, as normal and we have methanol. Now, we obviously need a way to determine if the methanol product contains carbon-14 or not. So we do this using another technique that you meet at A-level, mass spectrometry. A quick reminder for you that mass spectrometry is a method to determine the molecular mass of a molecule. If you need a reminder as to how this works, now would be a good time to pause the podcast and look back at your class notes or textbook. I'll also link some further resources in the episode handout. So uh, if you look at your handout in figure 2, you'll see uh, what the mass spectrum of normal unlabeled from your bottle on the shelf methanol looks like uh, and I've taken this from a real research paper so uh, you know this might be some some of your first exposure to, to real world experimental data so I've highlighted for you on this the important peak which is the molecular iron peak at 32 mz so just just another reminder for you um, that mz or m slash z is the mass to charge ratio so it's the mass divided by the charge of an ion in the mass spectrometer and it's the values that are plotted on the x-axis uh, and then the molecular ion peak which in this case will be the heaviest ion in the mass spectrometer so the signal to the furthest right on your mass spectrum uh, this is the one with the highest mz value and it will be equal to the molecular mass of the methanol sample. So you'll see this highlighted in yellow on figure two. Now, one thing you'll notice in this spectrum, which is also present in pretty much all mass spectra, is that there are many more peaks further to the left of the molecular ion peak. So these peaks are at lower mz values. These are fragment ions. So this is your ionized molecule in the mass spectrometer breaking apart into smaller ions with lower molecular masses. These are also detected by the detector, so you end up with a broad range of peaks in the mass spectrum. Now, we're not going to worry about these today. We can get lots of really useful information in our molecule from, these in, from this information, and you'll explore this much more at undergraduate level. But for now, all we care about is the molecular mass of the methanol that we've synthesized. So we're just going to focus on the molecular ion peaks, which I've highlighted in yellow on all the figures. Now, back to our labelling experiment, we've just made methanol from carbon-14 labelled CO2 and unlabelled carbon monoxide. So now might be a good time just to quickly pause the podcast and have a quick think as to how we're going to determine whether or not carbon-14 is present in the methanol or not. Okay, so now you've had a quick chance to think about that, uh, I can tell you that what we'll find in if the methanol is carbon-14 labelled when we 
get a mass spectrum of it is that the molecular iron peak will appear at 34mz as opposed to 32mz. Now I couldn't find an experimental example of this mass spectrum but I, I've made a schematic representation in figure 3 of your handout and again I've highlighted the molecular iron peak in yellow so it's clear. So what does this mean in the context of our experiment? So let's say you've run the mass spectrum of the methanol, you've found a molecular iron peak at 34mz which suggests it has a molecular mass of around 34 grams per mole. So this obviously suggests that our methanol is carbon-14 labelled. You'll recall that we labelled the carbon dioxide with carbon-14. So if you just see one big molecular iron peak, 34mz, it suggests that the carbon in our methanol has come from our carbon dioxide. What about if you put your synthesized methanol in the mass spectrometer and we got out a mass spectrum with a molecular iron peak at 32mz, just like that one in figure 2? Well, that means our methanol is unlabeled. It's, it's made with carbon-12. So that suggests that the carbon comes from carbon monoxide, which was unlabeled. Because if you think about it, the only carbon in our reactor that was carbon-12 was on the carbon monoxide. Now, there's one final possibility where we might see two molecular iron peaks, one at 32mz and one at 34mz, which I've tried to show schematically in figure four of your handout. So this suggests that you have both carbon-14 labelled methanol and ordinary unlabelled methanol present in your sample. Now, the only way this would be possible is if we had two different reactions going on in our reactor, one where the carbon comes from the carbon monoxide and one where the carbon comes from carbon dioxide. So we could have two reactions that are actually competing with one another here. So these are just some possibilities and obviously chemists will, will run, run the reaction and collect lots of data like this to try and determine what actually happens. So normally no one technique alone would be used. We'd use several of the techniques, including uh, this kind of reaction labelling, but also some of the techniques that Professor O'Donoghue discussed, and would use these to corroborate the data. So we'd say this experiment suggested that, this suggested that, and then eventually you build a picture of how the mechanism occurred. And then it ends up in textbooks where it's, where it's taught to you at A-level and, and degree level. So in actual fact with this reaction, uh, just for your curiosity, we find that the carbon comes predominantly from the carbon dioxide. Uh, and now that, uh, you know, so this happened many, many years ago, these experiments, but now that scientists understood where the carbon came from in methanol synthesis, they could start to hypothesize about the mechanism for the reaction further. So again, you know, corroborating it with other analytical techniques and um, basically they would figure out what reacts with what and how. So as they started to understand these mechanisms further, they can start to design, test and understand catalysts that provide different lower energy reaction mechanisms, as well as understanding how they can make these reactions more efficient. So it's, it's really important that we understand the mechanisms for these, these reactions, because if we want to optimize them for industry, you know, if we want to produce methanol on an industrial scale, which it very much is produced on an industrial scale, then, then we really need to understand how these reactions are happening. And there's a lot of very active research in, in this area, which we'll discuss next time in the next episode with Professor Donahue. So overall, this is a fantastic real-world example as to how chemists can solve real-world problems from the laboratory using concepts that you're actually largely familiar with from A-level.
I hope you found this episode interesting and I encourage you to listen to our next episode to the next part of my interview with Professor O'Donoghue where I'll be talking to her about her research interests which are largely aligned with what we've just been talking about so it's a really interesting continuation of what we've discussed today. I hope to see you next time and thank you again for listening.